everyone, and welcome back to the Living with Power Hope podcast. As you know by now, I hope you know, my name is Lena Abajamra, and I am so pumped that you're here. Uh, you guys know that every week now I interview a guest and we just focus on hope, hope the belief that change is indeed possible. And so if you're uh, short on hope today, you'll keep to the right place. I'm excited about our guest today and our conversation, partly because some of those conversations are my opportunity to get to know the guests really well. And today is one of those days. Uh, I kind of chuckled in, in, in going over uh, the stats of this, what I'm going to call a new friend. Her name is Lisa Jo Baker, and she is, get this guys, a former lawyer, which when I read that thought, at least focus on the word former, because if you know anything about doctors, we try to stay as far away from lawyers as possible, unless they are former lawyers. So we'll get to that in a minute. But Lisa Joe, it is awesome to have you. You are an author. You've got a podcast. You're publishing a Lifeway Bible Studies. I think you're best known for your book, Never Unfriended. But your first book, Surprised by Motherhood, also has made just a huge impact on women. Uh, you're currently the community manager at Encourage. And we want to hear about all of that. You live in D.C., you've married, you've got three very loud kids, which fits into <laughs> my family. So welcome. Oh, it's so good to be with you, Lena. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you saw the light, repented and, and uh, gave up your lawyer weight. Listen, I was actually a human rights lawyer. So actually a lot oh, more good lawyer, I think. That's good. We'll keep you then. I only practiced corporate law for nine months before I quit. We moved overseas to Ukraine and I worked for the UN on anti-human trafficking issues for the next several years. Okay, that's crazy. Does your husband look anything like George Clooney? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, and I look nothing like a mall. So <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Well, that's very exciting. We'll get to all of that in a minute. But, you know, every conversation that I have with guests, and, and truthfully, I've sort of watched your life uh, from afar through social media, which connects us in so many ways. But for really now, several years, I think. And, and um, I've, you know, I've, I've saw my friend today, I'm going to be doing this podcast with Lisa Joe Baker. And I thought, she just seems like such a nice person. You know, that's sort of like you're, you're real and you're nice. And I just was looking forward to our conversation, but tell us a bit about yourself. How did you come to know Jesus? You know, your background, you've traveled a ton and so fill us in on a little bit of who you are. Well, I know you and I have quite a bit in common, I think, because you were born in Lebanon, right? Yes, that's right. And I was born in South Africa. So I think both of us are mm -hmm. third world kids in a way. Um, I yeah. grew up in South Africa. My whole family lived there still. I always say I came to the States by accident because I came for college, but I stayed from the, for the really cute boy from Michigan with the green eyes that I didn't expect to meet. And so for the last two decades, we've gone back and forth. Some people collect fridge magnets when they travel, and we've had babies everywhere we lived. So, Hilarious. <laughs> um, and where are your kids born? So we have one that was born in South Africa, one that was born in Michigan, and one that was born in Virginia. And we currently live wow. in Maryland now, just outside of Washington, D.C. So I really now, stumbled into writing. It wasn't intentional for me. Yeah, uh, we will get to that. Let, let me just kind of drag this out a little bit because I, I just found this fascinating. Are your parents South African? They are, and they're not missionaries. Everybody assumes they must be missionaries or pastors, but they're not. We're just South African through and through. The way some people are from Michigan, we're from South Africa. And you grew up there. I did. I did. My whole family lived there still. We go back and forth a lot. We have a huge extended family there. So I so don't know that, but it's on my, my bucket list item for the past three years. I don't know why I haven't executed it yet, but it's to go to South Africa. So this is, really? I feel like this is a sign. I know, like I should, oh, I really? just want to do so much over there, but you don't have any accent at all. You know, I can put one on for you if you want me to, but I've lived here a really long time, a really long time. 
That's awesome. I'm going on a mission trip next week, and one of our um, fr- one of my friends who's come on this particular trip a couple of times in the past, and she's coming. She's actually an economist, but is runs our pharmacy when she comes, and she's South African. And really? It is a yeah joy to hear her um, accent, and uh, but I, I find it fascinating that people. Of course, you've been all over that you can bring on an accent, and I, I just fake like I try to sound southern sometimes, and people just like say, "Stop, Lena, don't do that." <laughs> I think part of it is I went to college in the states, and so when you're here as a student, you want to blend in. And the American accent is really easy to pick up. So, you know, South Africa has 11 national languages. So there's so many accents and so many languages. I think we're a little bit chameleon-like. We're good at fitting into other accents. Which is interesting given your book, which we'll get to in a second, it talks a little bit about fitting in and whatnot. And and so you were your parents believers? They weren't missionaries, but did they know Jesus or were you the first to sort of walk that path? No, they were definitely believers. But interestingly enough, while I always talk about how I didn't grow up in a missionary family, I was born, though, in the heart of Zululand in South Africa, while my father was a doctor in a missions hospital. So in South Africa, he was doing his residency in a hospital in a remote area of Zululand. And that's where I was born. So (laughs) while we're not a missionary family, I was born in a missions hospital, I always joke about. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we grew up in a family of very strong believers. My dad, both my parents, um, it's been that amazing experience, right? Of people whose faith is their native language. We grew up in a very much a believing family, but you know, faith isn't real until it has to grow some muscles. And my mom got really sick when I was 16 and she passed away when I was 18. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the very first time my faith sort of stepped off the pages of scripture and it became something I needed to actually walk through my life with. What, What did she have? She had leukemia. So she was sick for two years. And I think especially for my father as a doctor, as you can imagine, it's a very difficult difficult experience to see someone you love that you can't save. And my dad, definitely his faith was real, but I would say he was just a 100% legalist in many ways when it came to his faith. You do all these checkboxes and then God's supposed to do these things. And then it just did not go according to plan. And his whole world imploded and his faith crashed. And He was in a dire crisis for a long time, and he talks about how God met him there and became real, a person, not just somebody who's a set of rules or commandments or to-do lists, but somebody who loves you and who will lay down on the floor with you while you're crying because you feel like your life is over. So for my father, it was the loss of my mother, I think, that really shook his faith alive. Well, I can imagine for you too, you were 18, 16, 18. I mean, those are formative years. And and how did you react to all that? What was your, like, did you rebel? It's so difficult. You know, it's a really, it's a formative time for a girl to lose her mom. I had two brothers um, younger than myself and me. And so my mom was gone from the age of, you know, from when I was 16. And then she passed away when I was 18. So really in those formative teenage years, I didn't have her as a role model. And I grew up in a very legalistic church that had very prescriptive ways for women to behave. And they said women had to get married and have children. And that was it, period. That's your calling. And at the time, I just believed, well, that's crazy. I think I've called, you know, I'm being called to be a human rights attorney. Like, I think God wants me to fight against the evil of apartheid and other injustices in our world. But I didn't receive any support from our church in that regard. But my mom 
her courage and her fight against cancer was one of the biggest testimonies I've seen about what it looks like to really follow God into hard places. So while my church, I think, was very confused about what a woman's role was supposed to be, my mother wasn't. Mm. And so watching her on that journey in many ways gave me so much courage to feel like whatever God asks me to do, no matter how hard it is. And my mom talked about that, that the thing he had asked her to do was to follow him through this journey of leukemia. And so no matter what God asked me to do, I would be equipped to do it too. And in my case, I really didn't believe it was just to get married and have kids. <laughs> so um, it was expansive for me. I felt like I lost a lot from her passing away. And in the book, actually, Surprised by Motherhood, I share a lot of that story about how God redeemed a lot of my loss of a mother through giving me a daughter. That's awesome. Can you, for a minute, and not to deviate too much, but can you talk a little bit about the apartheid you know, situation and kind of what your birth in that time and how I think a lot of times we think we know about it a lot, but you just sort of have a vague notion, like where, what did you want to do when you wanted to be a lawyer for human rights? I mean, what was the tangible things that you felt you could change in that and how, like, where are things at right now in South Africa? Can you educate us a little? Yeah. Can you imagine that, you know, just recent, as recently as 20 years ago, we were still living in a completely segregated society with black and white people in the same way that you had experienced here in the US under the Jim Crow laws. So we lived in a country where um, the majority of the population is black and there are many tribal groups, so Zulu, Tosa, Tswana, and Debele, many, many groups, um, and the minority was white, but the minority was in power and had taken power since their arrival um, in the Cape, you know, hundreds of years before. And we lived in a, it's an apartheid is deeply oppressive regime that doesn't recognize the humanity of other races outside of the white race and calls itself a master race. All the you know, terrible things one inherits from uh, Nazism and the racial oppression you see here in the States and the, that, you know, many years ago in the Deep South. And even today, I know you guys wrestle with the same things, but it was institutional in South Africa. Mm. So I grew up, you know, when I was in high school, can you believe that high school? So that's only like, you know, 30 years oh, ago. Um, yeah. My high school was still segregated. High schools desegregated when I was in eighth grade, which wow. is hard to even wrap your mind around the levels of injustice and oppression and, you know, robbing from a native people, everything that was theirs. So um, was that when Nelson Mandela then was right? So Nelson Mandela was the hero we grew up hearing about. I've written many papers on him and read so many of his biographies and studied his trials. He was a lawyer, a human rights attorney, mm -hmm. fought for justice and a powerful voice. But he was imprisoned for 27 years. He was imprisoned on Robben Island, which is the famous notorious prison um, that's no longer in use. It's a museum now. You can visit it, but it's on an island. Um, across from Cape Town out in the Bay. And, um, but during the time of transition, when a lot of outside pressure was brought to bear on South Africa. So for example, I grew up under all of the sanctions imposed by the rest of the world. I'd never, at 18, I had never eaten a McDonald's burger or seen an American movie or worn Levi's jeans or Nikes, wow. nothing. None of that was part of my childhood. Um, um, South Africa had never participated in the Olympic games. It had never participated on the world stage. So in soccer or rugby or cricket, any of these international sports we were banned from. So that was my experience growing up in South Africa. 
But the you know, the benefit of those sort of sanctions is they finally brought enough pressure to bear on the government that steps were taken in the direction of recognizing and inviting the majority population group to finally be allowed to vote. Can you imagine that they wow. never, you know, like 85 to 90% of the population had never been allowed to vote. So interestingly enough, my first election, so when I was 18, I was legal to vote was the year that the rest of South Africa was also allowed to vote for the first time. Can you even imagine? I think that was 1994. So the first free election in South Africa. And people stood in line for hours and hours and hours, almost all day, waiting to vote because the lines were so long. Churches had prayed over the city because there was an opportunity, right? There could have been all Mm. kinds riots that could have broken out, infighting between the different political parties. There was a lot of fear that there might be some violent revolutions, people trying to overthrow the government, but it was a completely peaceful process. And Nelson Mandela was released from prison. It was negotiated. He was able to take back his standing in his party, the African National Congress, the ANC, and run as one of the candidates to vote for. I'll never forget those ballot forms were so amazing because a large percentage of the population weren't able to read or write due primarily to apartheid, having prevented them from receiving education, the ballots had photographs, had pictures of each of the candidates. Just amazing. You could actually buy them now framed. People will keep them as memorabilia because it was just such a monumental moment. So you can see the faces of the candidates to choose. And in that election, Nelson Mandela was overwhelmed. That was your first election. Yes. And just, I mean, amazing, amazing. His inauguration, I, everything about him, we love him so dearly. In the country, they call him Madiba which is his tribal familiar name. And he's really, you know, he passed away just recently, but he was seen as the father of the nation for so long. His birthday was a national holiday. Like as a white person having grown up under apartheid, I had parents as believers who knew, of course, that the inhumanity of this institution, the evil of it. And my father often says, He's lived through the fall of two things he thought he'd never see the end of, both apartheid and communism. So Mm. it's hard to even wrap your mind around it. So growing up under that, I saw all kinds of injustices as a teenager. And I just remember being so furious and telling my mom one day, we have to go to the police. Like, we have to go and report what what just happened. It's so shocking. And she said to me, they won't listen. They won't care. The only way to change this is to change the law. We have to do it from the inside. That's how we have to make a difference. And it was really in that moment, I think I was 13 at the time, where I said, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change the law from the inside. Wow. That's so awesome. And so then you, of course, what the guy stood in the way, you married him. And then what happened? How did that road change? Oh, he didn't stand in the way. He championed me. So I came to the States. I was here right, for right. I went to I went to Notre Dame Law School. They have an amazing in Indiana? program. Um, Peter was there too. We actually met in, in Indiana, my neck of the woods. Yes, yeah. You a big football fan now? You know, I wasn't. I had never been to a football game until I was at Notre Dame. They brainwash you into it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's pretty cool, actually. So, so actually, you, 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 after you married, you worked as a as a lawyer for some time, and, and so to kind of bring us up to the more modern, like, was that plan? You just had a baby. Did that what what happened to deviate right. from that work? Yeah. I mean, I swore I was never going to have kids. I didn't think it was going to be part of my story. I worked in Ukraine for several years as a human rights attorney. And then as he does, God slowly started to change my story. And what's so amazing about God is what I learned about him is that 
God gives gifts, right? He doesn't give obligations. Mm -hmm. And God didn't intend motherhood ever as an obligation or as a duty or as a chore or as a punishment. Motherhood is a gift. (laughs) And he offered it to me freely as a gift. But I truly believe that, um, and I heard God reassure me and speak to Pete about how, as a woman, I was beloved by him just for who I was as his daughter. Not because I I could have babies, not Mm -hmm. because of my law degree not because of the work I did. I was beloved because I was created in his image and that was enough. And so after I had gone through a season of really processing how God saw and loved me and realizing motherhood was a gift, yes, we had, we ended up having kids. And it was the funniest moment. I had a night where I was living in a small rental house in Virginia with a screaming baby at two in the morning that had just thrown up all over me. Mm. And I was felt, I just felt completely alone. I felt like nobody noticed. And I kept thinking, my goodness, is this what I do now? You know, I used to do this very important work that people would write articles about and there was attention and um, I was changing lives and saving women. And now I'm with this baby that puked on me and nobody cares. And in that moment, Lena, I really feel like the Holy Spirit gave me a glimpse of how heaven views us. And I felt like all of the angels were just bending down, looking at me and that the Holy Spirit just said, Lisa Joe, all of heaven bears witness to this moment right now. We all see it. Mm-hmm. And in God's economy, this moment is just as valuable as that moment you spent advocating for women in trafficking. In God's economy, anytime we speak up, we um, advocate on behalf of, we put someone else ahead of ourselves, that is righteous. And so the righteousness of a human rights attorney is no less significant than the righteousness of a mother who's up at two in the morning taking care of a sick kid. And I tell you what, that was a game changer for me. So I transitioned from advocating for women in one way in counter human trafficking to advocating for women the way I do now to encourage them in their seasons of motherhood and their seasons of calling that might not look how they expected it would. And I honestly believe in God's economy, he holds both of those as equally valuable. I agree. My sister and I were talking about this yesterday. I think that one of the hardest um, things in Christianity is to, and in humanity, I don't even think it's in Christianity, is to the sense of feeling loved by God. And so, yeah, she, we were talking a bit about that. And she had mentioned she heard a sermon by Colin Smith recently, who um, said that he had, as an example, an illustration, he was talking on this topic, and he said, that they had, some teacher had interviewed like a hundred students and asked them the simple question, do you feel loved by God? And two out of the hundred said yes. Wow. Which didn't surprise us so much. I mean, the question, I guess, in, in what you're presenting, because I, I really think this is so important when it comes to even hope. I mean, how do you, like that moment that you had that aha moment, okay, I, I matter to God, I'm seen, I'm loved, even though, and, and even, you know, you can then, because it, the cynic can listen and be like, well, now she says writing best-selling books and life Bible studies, of course she matters, whereas I'm the mom sitting in the house barely making ends meet. How do you feel loved by God in those moments where you're really hurt? Well, I, I often say, you know, that old children's song, Jesus Loves Me. Yeah. I, I like to think of it. There's a lyric I rewrite in my own mind that says, Jesus loves me. This I know for my children teach me so. And I might have books now, but I'm still that mom up last week with a kid who has flu, you know, at three in the morning when you're completely alone and nobody is paying attention to that moment. But through loving my children, the love I've experienced for them I felt like the Holy Spirit could climb up into my mind and whisper to me, this is how I love you. Mm 
The fact that I would, without hesitation, walk into a dark alley and offer myself up as a living ransom for those kids without even thinking about it. The Holy Spirit says, that's how I love you. Like that. Mm -hmm. That's why I died on a cross for you. That's why. And I think for the very first time in my faith, having kids helped me understand why a God would die for us. I think for a long time for me, that was a theological equation, right? It was something I studied or I knew with my mind. But when I held that baby in my arms and I realized I think I could literally lift a car up off of him if I needed to, it was in that mind that I know. You know, like, Jesus, you, know, you know that Jesus died for everybody, but how do you feel that he dies for you? You know what I'm saying? And which I know some of it is like you come to Christ, you have to have that personal. I, I mean, I get that intellectual thought, but I think that's what you're sort of pushing towards. Right, and right. If you could live in that state of being known and loved by God, it's like everything. Right. And that, that he actually, you know, I remember being up late nights with kids that were sick and just singing. You know how that is? You get mindless and you're just like singing the same thing over and over and over again. And but there it is in Zephaniah. You know, he talks about how he sings over us. Like that is actually how God loves us. He uses the metaphor of a mother when he talks about how he could never forget us in the same way that a mother could never forget the baby nursing at her breast. Like God uses those images for himself. And for me, that is when hope became real. It wasn't just something I read on the pages of scripture. It was living. It was in my house. It was toddling. It was crying. And it was God telling me over and over and over again, that is how I love you. That is how I love you. Did you start writing a blog? Is that how you got into writing? Yes. And so I, you know, being an attorney, writing is what we do. We write tons of stuff. And I, when we moved back to the DC area, I had worked for Habitat for Humanity for a while. I worked as an executive for a Christian organization, writing grants for them. And I stumbled onto blogging and I thought, oh my goodness, you can write for yourself. Like you can write your own things if you want to. And it was so fun to get to write my own stories. It felt like an outlet for the exhaustion of motherhood, but also the deep well of emotion I was experiencing. And so I stumbled into blogging and a publisher found me that way and approached me and asked to, you know, asked if I'd be interested in writing a book. And at the time, the story I had experienced, which really felt like God's radical redemption of all the brokenness from my childhood, the loss of my mom, a church that had diminished my womanhood, a sense of not knowing who I was, to come full circle to having my own kids and then my own daughter and realizing what it was like to mother a girl, it was the perfect opportunity then to say, yes, I I need to write that story down. Not just I want to write a book. I need to, whether you publish this book, whether anybody buys it or not, I have got to. I was compelled to write that story. And let me just tell you, there was nothing glamorous about it. I worked full time at a job, a day job. My kids were in daycare and I got up at four in the morning and I wrote from four to seven and we lived in a very tiny rental house. It was not nice. It had one spare bedroom. The kids all shared a room. Zoe, my little baby slept in a closet is where her (laughs) crib was. And then we had this tiny room that had all the toys in. And I would, I would sit in that room in the dark at four in the morning and write and like weird toys would go off, you know, and start singing or chirping (laughs) and make weird, creepy noises. And I would write from four to seven. And then the kids would get up and Pete and I would get kids ready for the day. And I'd drop kids at daycare and I would work all day in my corporate job. I would come home, pick up kids, make dinner, go to bed, and then start again the next morning. And I would write all weekend. There was nothing glamorous. I didn't have a beautiful office. I didn't have time off to write. And I always tell people, if you have a story to tell, you will find the time to write. So 
I, I was that unseen, exhausted, overworked, underpaid mom, yet who felt compelled to write down her story because it really was surprised by motherhood is my testimony in so many ways of rediscovering how God not only sees us, but loves us. Yeah. What motivated your second book, Never Unfriend? Never Unfriended is motivated out of, um, I worked for seven years as the community manager for this amazing online website called Encourage. It's spelled I-N, Courage. And it really is a gathering place for women of faith from all over the world to come and share their real life stories of faith. So we always talk about how it's not a place for your Sunday dressed up best faith. You know, it's like the faith when the dishwasher breaks down and the kid projectile vomits or you get fired from that job. Like it is everyday faith at its grittiest. And so seven years of getting to serve that community meant I had heard thousands, not hundreds, thousands upon thousands of stories about women and how they had either been hurt by one another or healed by one another. And I realized we have at our core as women, a deep longing for friendship and connection, but we are more and more disconnected in our social media age. And so sadly within church communities, women are so badly hurt by other women of faith. What does that mean? <laughs> what do we do with that? How do we make right. sense of it? And so many women want to just be done with friendship. They just want to wash their hands of it and say, I'm out, you know, just I'm, I cash in my chips and I'm done. But here I am raising a daughter and serving a community of women. And as I can tell from scripture, being modeled in the image of God, a three in one God community, friendship, intimacy in that way is significant. And if the enemy cuts us off from it, he has so much a better chance to win against us. We, we really need friendship for our spiritual health and well-being. So that's where the book was born from, to try to sit down to unpack, you know, what is it that we fear? What, you know, how have we been hurt? What can we do about it? What can't we do about it? There's some things we can't actually change about other people. You know, and then how do we start? I wanted to write a practical book about what I had seen and learned from women about women when it came to friendship and then marry it with what God says about friendship and what he models. What are some of the best, like three or four tips, you know, or two, three tips that you can think of to tell like, hey, what are some things we can do to make better friendships? And but particularly, I mean, I want to kind of lean into anybody who knows me knows that I hate, you know, I have a love-hate social media relationship. Right. And I, my ministry is primarily driven by social media. So it's like, in a way, you can't disdain it. I have a conversation every month with my small team and we're like, that's it. I'm unblocking every form of <laughs> social media platform because I can't take it. Like, I know exactly how Satan uses it to, to kill me, you know? And like, right. and then it's like, ugh, coming out of the pit is so exhausting. And, and it's like, by now I should know better. And it's always relational. I mean, you're hitting on it exactly. But how do you, but then you can't discontinue it because now you can't right. communicate with the people you want to serve. So how do you achieve balance? How do you be healthy in that. I know uh, if only it was as simple as removing social media from our phones, right? But, but this <laughs> issue like, way predates way predates social media. I mean, look at the Garden of Eden. Like e Eve is the classic mother of FOMO. Like basically she has a fear of missing out on what God is doing for her. And that's why she eats the fruit. Like right there where she's surrounded by perfection. She feels like there's something she's been left out of. So, <laughs> well, you know, this isn't an Instagram problem. This is a heart problem True. that we have to solve. And so for me, it really has been, there are many facets of it. I think one of the most one of the things I hear a lot about friendship is like, you know, I don't have friends, nobody approaches me, nobody asks me, it's, you know, I, I'm just alone. 
the thing about friendship is, especially if it's friendship in Jesus's image, like we have a God who, and I love this, the message translation talks about how Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Like he came to be with us. It was active. And so if we want friends, we will actually have to take an action. We won't be able to just sit around and wait or feel sad or left out. The, the, it's incumbent upon us to take the first step. And I love that because in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, the question Jesus is asked is, who is my neighbor? And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan in order to illustrate how to be a good neighbor. He flips it on its head. It's not about just sitting here saying, well, who are the people out there mm. you know, that are going to be my friends? No, Christ is calling us, you know, not to just practice wait and see friendship, but to go and do, to go and be a friend. So on a practical note, when we move, and we've moved a lot, when we arrived in Maryland, I remember feeling so sad. We left a huge, rich community of friends behind. But I knew if I want to make friends, I will have to do something. So when our church asked for home group leaders, I signed up for the potluck and awkwardly arrived where I knew nobody and sat around and made small talk and invited people into my life. And then we offered to let our house be the place where we hosted home group. And we had a whole bunch of strangers arrive and spent time getting to know them and serving the meatballs and cleaning up afterwards. And now those are some of my closest friends, my dearest people who come over when my kids are sick or come and champion a book release. But it's because I signed up and I went to the awkward brunch thing. You know, you you have to do, you have to actually take steps. Right. Yeah. I mean, in real life, it's sometimes more manageable in terms of like guarding your heart and getting to the root of what, you know, what's behind that. But what about those virtual relationships? Do you, do you just, they tend to go through like and block people who constantly like you feel like bad when you see what they're doing and, you know, do you, do, do, do you take measures like that or how do you get to the root of that? Like, you know, that FOMO, that missing out, that jealousy that creeps up, that sort of, you know, self-pity then, and that sense of, well, God doesn't love me as much as he loves them. That's right. sort of mentality. How do you personally guard against that? Especially in the realm of work you do. I mean, you're sort of in this social media world and yeah. you know, you're publishing a book, you're seeing how that does. I mean, there's constant measures of comparison with others. And every one of us has our little worlds that we measure online, which is not a fair measurement because you might never meet these people. So do right. you just unfriend and move on? Or do you kind of keep it and and sort of numb yourself? Like I'm going to keep it like immunization. I'm going to keep exposing myself to that pain until I'm numb. Yeah, I do neither. Um, I (laughs) spent a lot of time trying to get to know Jonathan from the Bible because I wanted to understand how Jonathan could be such good friends with David and not be jealous of him the way his great great point. What is up with that? Like Saul, what did you find? Saul reacted the way all of us react, right? Right. So jealous, he actually wanted to kill to kill David. Jonathan goes out of his way to basically align himself with David. He's constantly showing up to encourage David. Like at David's lowest moments, when Jonathan could have in that moment said, ooh, maybe I'll get the throne back. Maybe I can just tell David to give it up and it's not worth it. Like Jonathan was literally going to lose his inheritance because of David. Here's what I discovered about Jonathan that makes him the perfect case study. Saul aligned himself with Saul. Jonathan aligns himself with God. And Mm -hmm. that's why he aligns himself with David. Jonathan is interested in what God is doing. And he says, he sees that God is working through David, which is why Jonathan aligns himself with David. And it's so interesting because he actually says these words to David, you will be the ruler and I will be your second in command. Imagine the humility of that. But it's because Jonathan has a bigger picture for his life. And his picture is what God is doing. 
Jonathan wants in to what God is doing. And I say to women, if you could just look at those people you're jealous of or you're comparing of and think to yourself, oh my goodness, what if God is at work here? Who am I to stamp my foot and say, it's not fair. Why didn't I get that? No, no. It's time for me to shut up and say, how do I support her? How do I champion her? Because I, in doing so, am aligning with God. And at the end of the day, when I arrive in heaven and he asks me about my life, I want to be able to bring with me an inheritance that I reaped from aligning myself with the kingdom work of hundreds and thousands of women. I want to say, God, I had inheritance in what she did, and I was cheering for her. And I got this picture because I was home in South Africa one year. I was at Bible study with my dad at prayer meeting, and they're praying. It was very loud. Everybody just stood the whole time. Nobody sat. And they had a report in the middle of prayer meeting from a team that was up in um, Zambia doing uh, missions work there. And they had the cell phone on, the leaders giving reports of what they're doing. And everybody in the room is just yelling, amen. Yes, Lord, go take, take ground. I talked to my dad afterwards and I said, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. And he said, no, listen to me. You don't have to go to a missions trip to have an inheritance in what God is doing in Zambia. You just have to pray for them. Because when you arrive in heaven one day, you can tell the Lord, I took land in Zambia. And I feel that way about women's lives. I can look at the work of, you know, Angie Smith or um, what you're doing and say, I stood behind her. I cheered and I championed God. I have an inheritance in what she did for the kingdom. And so that is how I teach my brain these days when I'm looking at Instagram. And when I start to feel that jealousy trumps my ability to encourage, then it's not that person I need to block. It's me. I need to get off Instagram and I need to go spend some time with God and remember it's his kingdom that I'm here to serve, not my own. That's awesome. What do you tangibly measure as a success? Like when, you know, you've got a lot of, you know, we tend to be such a measurable society, you know, like whether it's getting the degree or selling the books or what, 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 at the end of the day, what is true success in Lisa Joe Baker's eyes? Oh, it's a good question too. I'll give you two things. Um, Number one, I hear from my children that they feel loved and safe and that they know they're my priority. And number two, I hear from writers, from readers, um, I get, it's the emails and messages I get that share with me how something God prompted me to write met them. And Mm. and in so doing, they met God. I think the list I try to remind myself I want to be on when it comes to books is the list of books one woman would recommend to another woman, right? Like you have to read this because when you do, you will be reminded God loves you or God meets you or God would die before he would ever unfriend you. I want to be on that list, the small list that a friend passes to a friend, because that way you know you've shown up in a way where God's kingdom is being advanced and not my own. I tell you what, I'm terrified of my own kingdom, Lena. Mm -hmm. I am very good at building that kingdom. And I feel like my hope is I will constantly be deconstructing the kingdom of Lisa Joe and helping to build the kingdom of Christ. And I'm not good at it. I get it wrong all the time. And I struggle with jealousy and comparison as much as anybody else. But I have learned this isn't a social media problem. This is a heart problem. And it's simply means it's just time for me to put my phone under my pillow and forget about it for a few days. That's so good. What are you working on now? So I have this book I'm really excited about. I always say of all my book babies, I think this is now my favorite child. Um, It's because it's a collection of stories about seemingly unremarkable things. I think we live in a culture that wants to tell us bigger, better, flashier, more followers, higher stages. You know, we want to live on those big 
mountaintop moments, but most of us don't live there. Like we live on ordinary Tuesday afternoons where someone forgot their soccer cleats and you have to go pick them up. Like that's where most of life takes place. And so this book is in many ways a sequel to my first book, which was Surprised by Motherhood. This one is called The Middle matters. And it's about the season of life in the middle when your kids aren't little anymore, but they're not out of your house yet. And everything feels like a hamster wheel on repeat. How do we find meaning in those moments? And I trying to teach women that they don't actually have to seize the day. What if they could just see the day? What if Mm. you slow down enough to actually pay attention (laughs) to these moments that feel like, oh my gosh, I'm just cutting peanut butter sandwiches again and triangles without the crust. But but what if underneath those layers, there are these glimpses of stunning beauty, this extraordinary glory in our everyday lives. And so that's what the book is. It's a love letter to let it come out. And it's so I have all these sections, you know, there's a section called, it's all these parts of why the middle matters. So why the middle of your muffin top matters. And it's a whole <laughs> letter to women's bodies here in the 40s, you know, and awesome. why the middle of failure matters. And it's about doubt and faith and how difficult parenting is when your kids become teens and marriage in the middle when you fight and have to figure out who are we now that we've been together 20 years. And so in many ways, it's a love letter to completely ordinary days by always teaching myself to see the extra in all the ordinary. So good. When does that come out? It comes out July 23rd, an excellent summer read to do with your friends and hopefully transition you nicely into a new school year. That sounds awesome. In fact, what I want to do on this podcast is give away two of your Never Unfriended books since that's already out. So the first couple of people that email me will give those away. Uh, and then they'll people, you know, I, I would encourage everybody to get that book. And that way, by the time July comes around, y'all can be so ready for the next, you know, and then of course you can always get the third too, but I just think that's sort of a good strategy to get to know an author. Uh, you also have a Bible study that caught my attention. Uh, we saved you a seat. Talk to, a little bit about that as we come to the end of this. Yes. So Lifeway wanted to dig a little deeper after we did Never Unfriended. So we saved you a seat as new content. Some of it echoes back to Never Unfriended, but it really is a way to sit down with friends and have, I always talk about how we need to move the conversations we have in our heads into real life. You know, I think as women, often we have all these narratives running in our minds, but sometimes it's helpful to actually say those out loud. Let's have some real talk, some real honest talk about friendship. And so We Saved You a Seat does that. It's a conversation between friends and it's written so that you can sit down with your girlfriends and go there, talk about forgiveness, talk about jealousy, talk about comparison, talk about what it means to go first, to show up, to serve, all the active ways to be a friend. And it introduces you in a really deep way to Jesus, who is the friend who literally died before he would ever unfriend you. And so my hope is that it will encourage women in groups to just have some really honest conversations about friendship and you know, discover the kind of friend they want to be, not the kind of friend they want to have, but the kind mm. of friend they want to be. And that's available now, correct? Everywhere. Yeah. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Lifeway stores, you name it. It's awesome. Tell, tell us how they can people can reach you. It's so easy. I am just everywhere the same. Lisa Jo Baker. So L-I-S-A-J-O, no E. Lisa Jo Baker on Instagram is my favorite place to spend time. I'm there pretty regularly, but also on Facebook. And my website is just lisajobaker.com. But I'll also share for anybody who's interested in hearing more stories about ordinary life. um, I actually host a podcast with a good friend of mine. And the podcast is called Out of the Ordinary. And you can find it on any of your podcast apps. And every week we share a story 
um, in order to uncover the extra in completely ordinary moments of our lives. That's awesome. Well, we will certainly be looking for that. You have been lovely, Lisa. I have enjoyed this. Do you go by Lisa Joe or Lisa? I do. You know, Joe was my mom's name. So I go by Lisa Joe. And actually, my firstborn son is named Jackson Joe. He's named after all the strong oh. women in his family. Do people call him JJ? They do sometimes, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, listen, uh, I have really thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you and learning about your self and your culture. We didn't even talk about marriage that much. Yeah, I know. I know. Sometimes there's only just enough and you need to have many more conversations to get into all those deep right. places. The next levels, right? Right. But thank you so much for your time. It's been fun and we hope we to have you back down the road and we look forward to this book. I think you are so down to earth and real and I pray God's blessing over you and, and just that uh, he continues to use you mightily. In the meantime, if you're listening and want to reach her, you, we're going to put out the uh, website again, lisajoebaker.com. Or if you have a question about any um, anything, really, you know how to reach me at livingwithpower.org. You can use the contact page or email me, lena at livingwithpower.org. Guys, as usual, keep your hope in the Lord. Uh, we will catch you again next week. In the meantime, remember that you are deeply, deeply loved by God Almighty. Have a great day.